This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening, you're listening to 3RRR 102.7 FM and this is Plato's Cave. We're going to send some film criticism your way. My name is Thomas Cordwell and I'm joined by Josh Nelson. Josh, it's just you and I in the cave tonight. Yep, it's the ubiquitous man cave. It's <laughs> our, our co-presenters Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller Nicholas will be back at some point over the next few weeks, but tonight it is just Josh and I. Uh, doing exactly what we said would never, ever do. Yeah, can we just, with the disclaimer, given we seem to talk about gender quite frequently on this show, this is an unintentionally fellow-centric show, people. Yeah, it's two blokes talking about a bunch of films about men. <laughs> when we began this back in the podcast days, you and I said, we want to do this together, but the last thing the world needs is another film show with two guys talking about their opinions. So let's let's sit on that until we can find some other people to present with. And here we are. Brilliant. I've come full circle. Thank you again to everyone who subscribed to us. Uh, the Subscribe-a-thon <laughs> is still on. You can still subscribe and win the major prizes, so make sure you do that. Paint the town triple R. Head over to rrr.org.au. But, Josh, let's get into it. We are going to... Uh, yeah, we're going head-to-head with two intellectual heavyweights from the 1960s, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley Jr., in the documentary Best of Enemies. Uh, we then take a look at young love and the loss of that love in the new Australian film Holding the Man, based on the 1995 memoir of the same name. And we'll end with the documentary The Wolfpack, a film that looks at six brothers living in New York who never left their apartment and were raised on a diet of films and pop culture. And look, we're actually somewhat, I think, avoiding films about men that rely on the usual representations of masculinity. But Josh, you went along to see a (laughs) film that I believe... Does conform to some of the traditional representations of masculinity. I'm very curious to know what it was like. Uh, Josh, tell us about Southpaw. Yeah, look, I, I want to give this a very brief shout out. Not necessarily because I think it's a, a great film, but I think there's perhaps some more degrees of interest in this boxing film than most of the, or the critical response would tend to suggest. So this is a film stars Jake Gyllenhaal. You may remember there was that incredible promotional photo that leaked earlier this year of him. He's, tra- he's done a Christian Bale. He's transformed his body into this rock hard kind of monolithic crazy figure. buff especially yeah. since nightcrawler where he was so so thin he's yeah. doing the uh, he's doing the up and down yo-yo dieting um and look he's really strong his performance is really strong he plays uh, a heavyweight boxer this is very much the rocky three type narrative it's the riches to rags it's the guy who's got it all who's the undefeated champ and then slides down and look the the general critical response to this film has been it's let down by its cliches and i think that's a bit of a lazy approach to or lazy excuse to kind of down played this film. In some ways you could say and make a case that most of genre cinema is in in a sense uh, cliches ordered in some coherent manner to provoke an emotional response to the audience. That's what genres predominantly do in terms of their their formulas. I don't think that's the problem with this film per se. The problem is the redundant cliches. It's almost trying to borrow too many cliches from the boxing film and in ways can't juggle them all and it comes off feeling quite ham-fisted uh, as a result. You know, and but I think it's worth pointing out that beyond Jake Gyllenhaal's performance, Forrest Whitaker as the sort of the, the boxing trainer who tries to bring him back up to the top, 
does a pretty decent job with a pretty weak script. But the the performance that really stood out for me is the the uh, girl who plays Jake Gyllenhaal's daughter, uh, Una Lawrence, who I think has worked predominantly on stage in the states, and she is really striking in this film. Um, you know, I, th- I think the biggest problem with this film is the way in which it tries to provide the justification for his rise to the top. It's incredibly problematic from a gender point of view, but also from a narrative point of view, and that was really disappointing. Okay. That's Southpaw. And look, from one boxing ring to another, let's talk about Best of Enemies. I think actually thinking of Best Best of Enemies almost like a bit of a boxing film is kind of apt. This is a documentary made by... uh, uh, Morgan Neville? Yeah, thank you. And Robert Gordon. Yeah, Robert Gordon and Morgan Neville, who directed 20 Feet from Stardom. That won the Academy Award for Best Documentary, didn't it? I never saw that, did you? No, and... (laughs) That was the year we saw every single doco except for that one, I think. And and it won. (laughs) I've heard quite mixed responses, but on the back of this, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm tempted to go back and check it out. Yeah, likewise. Well, let's break it down. I'll just say from the outset, and I think you're on the same wavelength as me, Josh, I was really impressed by this film. It, It sounded almost limited in what it could do and I think it went above and beyond my expectations. It's about, it looks at the 1968 American television coverage of the Democratic and Republican National Conventions. So at the time in America there were only three uh, TV stations, one of them was ABC and somebody made a, a joke that ABC was only running third place in the polls because there was no fourth or fifth place for it. Um, it was doing that badly and they decided to get some attention to try to get some of the news audience by getting debates to happen on air about politics and until this point, this had never happened. Reporting politics was very dry and neutral and and, and moderate. Um, so ABC wanted a bit of debate. Um, you know, this seems like so second nature to the way we we absorb news now. It, it's sort of people discussing the issues from two extreme points of view. But um, this was a new thing in 1968, and so they got two men to do these debates, and they were pretty remarkable men, both as real intellectual powerhouses and both because they so aggressively defined their side of politics. You know, these guys hated each other and hated each other's politics. So on the right... We had <laughs> William F. Buckley Jr., who was sort of the pillar of the modern um, conservative movement. You know, he founded the National Review magazine in 1955. He was kind of he was a big Reagan guy, a big Nixon guy. Um, you, get, you, you get the you know he, he, he often joked about punching people in the face, but in a very very charming way. Part of the yeah, I'll, I'll get onto that in a moment. <laughs> and on the left, we have Gore Vidal, who we've spoken about in this program before. There was a feature documentary about. Him a number maybe two years ago. Two years ago, yeah. What was that called? The United States of Amnesia by an Australian documentarian, uh, Nicholas Rothel. That's right. Really good, uh, really good um, documentary on Vidal, and that references some of the footage we see in this film. So Vidal was. Um, he, you know, he was very, very left-wing, very progressive. He was one of the first to talk about sexual fluidity. Um, he was very, uh, you know, he would be horrified that we were still debating marriage equality, put it that way. He, he was very openly um, encouraging people to explore their sexuality in all sorts of ways that terrified the establishment. He was known for books such as The City and the Pillar and My Breckenridge, so very satirical novels attacking American morality. So you've got these two extremes, very intelligent men, very diametric opposed debating and I guess the point of the film is one it gives us a really good idea of what the political landscape was in America at the time and also the way the media worked 
And I kind of like the fact that the kind of eventual conclusion this film kind of came to, for me anyway, was that this was an, an amazing idea to have these intellectuals on television, but it was sort of the beginning of the end. And they didn't really debate very well at all. It was just personal attacks, which were enormously fun, but it really devalued what they were trying to do. And that's why we're sort of in the situation we are now with our, our really crappy quality of political commentary on, on, on the media. Yeah, there's a real joy tinged with sort of sadness and, and a kind of a melancholy in this film, given how delicious, I think is probably a good way of describing the barbs, the personal barbs that they trade in these segments and the way in which you look at the media landscape today, and this is what the, sort of the documentary, I guess, moves towards, is it's become reduced to these sort of screaming matches in a manner of like Jerry Springer type television master or, you know, presented to the audience under the guise of a kind of op-ed Fox News type commentary. Um, but the person personalities themselves are so well defined in this film and they're so fascinating and I think the documentary makes a really strong point that they weren't typical necessarily of what was going on in American culture at the time because here you had two uh, out and proud intellectuals in an anti-intellectual cultural landscape and you could even make the case that America is even more anti-intellectual now but I think the, the footage of the debates here and the way in which the, the documentary is structured, and I, I think your boxing analogy is perfect because we get these series of debates, debate one, debate two, and each time they present that title card, it's accompanied by the boxing ding. And this is what it feels like. These two guys, it's personal, it becomes increasingly personal, and it culminates in one of those defining moments of, of television which would then haunt these men afterwards. Yeah, where they... Well, one of them probably crosses the line but keeps his cool and the other one crosses the line while losing his cool and and the film goes yeah beyond that moment to look at how it how it affected the rest of their their lives as you say and it's curious actually to see who sort of comes out on top because the film looks at how you define a winner too in, in intellectual debate i mean is that even possible like who had the most sort of salient points or who undermined the other or who made the other lose their, their, their temper and then further in life who dealt with that the best way and you know, I was surprised by somebody who I would probably side more with who got a bit bloaty actually, it was a bit disappointing to see that, that vindictiveness and that poisonness continuing throughout their lives uh, but yeah I re- really really enjoyed this and I think it's a good point as well that having intellectuals on television was a very unusual thing these, these two men were both outsiders but they were both sort of starting to command their own movements in their own way, sort of either directly as figureheads as sort of, or unofficial figureheads. And that's what the doco does so well. It looks at how politics started to become so incredibly segmented in America. And we've just seen the continuation of that ever since, to the absurdity of the Tea Party. Uh, to what's happening here, where we've got a government that's effectively like the, 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 the Tea Party, and we've got a level of d- political and media in, in this country that is so ridiculously segmented, and it's more about name-calling than anything remotely constructive to do with politics. And you look at the, the I guess, the counters to the, the dominant political discussion in, in both America and here, and we seem to be on the way. And I mean, the the singular kind of political satirist, and it's a satirist more than an intellectual, though I think he's incredibly smart, is Sean McAuliffe and mad as hell in Australian television. And we, we, we seem to be losing the political satirist in America every other week. I mean, John Oliver seems to be the lone voice in the absence of both John Stewart and uh, well, wow. Stephen Colbert. Thank yeah. you, Stephen Colbert, <laughs> who's now taking over from Letterman, probably yeah. won't have the same sort of persona. Mm. I think it's. I think now is when we need these voices the 
most. And this is what I think this documentary, again, brings brings forth and makes it so relevant. And I've got to say, I like the fact that both men were treated with about the same amount of respect. And it, it, what this doco wasn't actually trying to make you take sides in terms of their personality or their politics. Like, you know, I, I definitely have politics that strongly align with one more than the other. But I found that other guy is still quite, quite charming and entertaining. And I kind of did respect his intellect, even though I found his politics abhorrent. I also want to, want to flag one of the techniques this documentary uses to cite um, pieces written by and, and, and quotes from the two counterparts, and that is it uses, who I think are both defined by their left and their right politics. Yeah, good call, yep. John Lithgow voices quotes from Gore Vidal, and Kelsey Grammer voices the um, references to William F. Buckley Jr., and I really enjoyed the way that was integrated within the film. Especially when you know what those two guys are like off-screen, and oh, it still breaks my heart that Kelsey Grammer is so right-wing, but whoops, I just gave it all away. There's my bias. <laughs> You're listening to 3 Triple R. This is Plato's Cave. We've just been talking about Best of Enemies. 3 Triple Yes, well, from one film about two men going at it to another film. Oh, wow, I didn't think about that before I said it. To another film about two men going at it in a very different way. Holding the Man. This is a, a film that grew from a, a memoir by Timothy Conagrave. It was then adapted to the stage by uh, Tommy Murphy, and now it's been adapted for the screen. Tommy Murphy actually adapted his own stage play, and it's directed by Neil Armfield, also a director who's known probably more for his theatre work than his film work, although he directed the uh, film Candy, which was really an impressive film, which I revisited uh, recently. Holding the Man is about a relationship of two guys who meet in Melbourne at Xavier in their teens and fall in love, and it follows their relationship across the, the... mid-70s through the 80s and into the the 90s. And this is a film, I think you could say, is about love and death. For me, it feels like it has a, quite a simple premise. But it, And the, I guess in that context, the film rests very strongly on the two lead actors, Ryan Kaur, who plays Timothy Conagrave, and Craig Stott, who plays John Kaleo. Um, I think these are two of the, the most genuine and heartfelt performances in a relationship context of any film this year, and the film really rests so strongly on the chemistry that exists between the two of them. I also think it's worth flagging that you know this film, as I mentioned in, in terms of the context about death, it's a film that deals with the issues of, of AIDS and the epidemic that, that uh, went through Australia, well, globally, but particularly Sydney and, and Australia in the 1980s. Although I want to flag that I don't think it's a film about AIDS and I wanted to create a kind of important distinction between Holding the Man and, say, a film like Philadelphia or even Angels in America, um, films and plays which I think deliberately politicise and for you know uh, altruistic reasons the, uh, the AIDS issue and AIDS epidemic and, and the significance. But at the core of this film, I think it's about the relationship between these two men. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. For me, the, the, the film worked on, on, on two levels and, and one was documenting this era of this era where, where gay men were increasingly able to, to come out and were getting more and more vocal as well about their identity. I mean, gay politics, gay, queer identity politics was very much happening around this era, the late 70s and going into into the 80s. And um, and then when it, of course, collides with the, um, the horrific AIDS epidemic. And, you know... We sort of need to remember a huge demographic of people lost a hell of a lot of loved ones. Like a lot of people lost friends and lovers in in very large numbers during during this era. And you're right, the film isn't overtly about that, but by showing us the 
the lives of two people who are affected so heavily and so personally by this, it sort of is. And in a way, it's kind of political, political by stealth, in a way I found really satisfying. Absolutely. It's the kind of thing that you and I, well, all of us in the cave, tend to prefer, actually, sort of films that, that take a very personal story and, and talk about a, a bigger picture event. So that, that's the one hand. And the other hand is, yeah, it's, it's a love story. It's about these two guys who meet as schoolboys who are really kind of awkward and, do you like me? And I think he likes me. Can I ask him out? And can he sit next to me at the dinner party? And they have awkward sex and they have awkward conversations and they worry about offending each other and they worry about, oh, I've been together for a while, what else is out there? And it's really quite romantic and sensual and very, very funny. And I, I mean, I love... I, I really love this film, and I especially love the first half because it is so kind of warm and quite universal. I mean, there's so many experiences that happen to these guys that I think um, a lot of people can you know re- relate to on some level. And then there's a whole lot of experiences where we're lucky enough not to be able to re- relate to. Um, and But, yeah, it, there is something almost simple about the film, but when you start to look at it as a segmented Beast, you realise actually how, I think, complex and how well-crafted it is. I mean, the whole film is basically a series of moments and incidents. It doesn't sort of feel like your traditional three-act structure. Even though roughly you could say this is the, 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 this is the period where they're falling in love, this is the period of activism, and then this is the end, you know, they, they pick key incidents to sort of make broader commentary on the, 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 the s- s- social issues at the time. And I think that's really skillful and that's really charming, and you really do get a sense of who these two... I mean, from all accounts, in real life, wonderful men, and they certainly come across as wonderful men in this film. Also very flawed, messy, you know, l- l- like anybody. Um, so that's the strength of this film. And it, it, it's never sentimental, but it maintains a sincerity through to the very end, which I found very emotional and quite overwhelming. Yeah, look, I think I should change that. When I said simple, I didn't mean that in a, in a negative context. And no, I got what you said, and I think what you were saying was appropriate, yeah. I mean, the, the themes of love and death aren't, aren't really simple at all. I mean, they're quite grand and epic in, in some ways as, as well. Um, it's not trying to be tricky, though, is it? No. Yeah. And look, you're right, the first half an hour or so when we are witnessing the beginnings of the burgeoning relationship in their teen years in the high school stuff is pulled off so well. I can't think of another film where you've had the the same actors who will play the adult versions of these two men or the, or women in the case of say other films um, playing themselves as teenagers in such a convincing manner the mannerisms the acting the kind of awkwardness of all that you know it was a nostalgia trip even though you know my experience of romance in high school was particularly different to these guys there was something about it that I I connected with inclu- oh wow <laughs> <laughs> I know the scene going yeah there's a uh, there's Go on, a, talk there, about it there is an extraordinary <laughs> masturbation scene. In this film, which I think, sorry, filmmakers and writers, there's no need to ever try and write another masturbation scene because it's it's reached peak awesome with this film. I think it's quite a remarkable moment in, in a film with a series peak of peak awesome. Good choice of words. Series of impressive moments. You know, the funny thing about my response to this film while I was watching it, I was aware that there were certain scenes and moments, and they were typically those outside of the ones that focus exclusively on the two lead actors. Often when they involve the the secondary cast. Who, there's some really great names amongst them. Uh, Lapalia, Jeffrey Rush is in there. Um, and I, 
I felt they were awkwardly staged and the dialogue didn't quite ring true. But I think if you're going to say, well, the weaknesses of the film are in some ways due to the theatricality, then you also have to compliment the film because there's an, an extraordinary tableau towards the end of this film, which is very theatrical as well, and it, it, it killed me. It's in a moment that I think it plays to the strengths of Neil Armfield bringing that kind of theatrical background to a film that is quite cinematic. And the structure is interesting because we don't just get a simple chronological tale. And there's a moment where we flash we flash forward and then we flash back and we work mm. up to that point. And I was like, hang on, why are we doing this? Why are we getting this exposition now? And when we come to the realisation of why that is, I think, later in the film, it really packs a punch. Yeah, it's actually... Because the memoir is not like that. The memoir just starts where it starts and ends where it ends. Where that interesting changing the structure, um, changing you know the, the lineal progression so we see some events later than others uh, in a very strange way reminded me of the film Irreversible, which is you know the, the tragedy of Irreversible is it shows you backwards what happens. So when you get to the final scene of that film, which is actually the start, it's so appalling knowing what's going to happen to the people later in the film. And I think holding, holding the man in the film somewhat, yeah, is it, doing that. It jumps forward so that when we see scenes that happen before that, I suppose the consequences of some of what we, we're watching is going to hit harder. And it really worked. I, 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 I think that was a really bold move to, to mix it up like that, and it definitely really worked for me. Um, I really liked the whole cast. I, I didn't get a sense of it being too theatrical in any moment. Um, perhaps there was sort of some... Um, slightly stylized tableau effects in some of the group scenes. I, I kind of... Now you mention it, I kind of do see what you're saying, but it certainly worked for me. That scene at the end did break me. There's another scene that's incredibly powerful um, where they go to the wedding. One of them has a sister who's having a wedding and it involves Guy Pearce, who plays one of the boy's fathers. And just this, this, this gesture he does, this very public moment he does, which becomes a private moment with his son, that's the first time I really felt myself getting choked up. And I thought I was doing okay until that point. It's actually a really beautiful moment. I think the film does a lot of really good work with the idea of public and private space as well. You know, you do get lots of scenes with, with, with bodies and people and movement and then just... Beautiful little tight close-ups as the boys, especially at the start, as they exchange a glance across the classroom and 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 um sort of yeah really kind of sweet moments like that, especially when they haven't gone public with their affair and they're just exchanging those looks, and you do get a sense of the whole world has vanished behind them and it's just about them. Yeah, look, I also want to just come back to this point about that you raised earlier about the humour in the film because I think as soon as you mention AIDS to an audience that may not necessarily see this film, it throws up a flag and they're like, oh, that sounds dreary and awful and I don't want to go to, you know, pay my money to go to a cinema and see someone dying on screen. Um, I think this film is quite clever in, in the fact that it doesn't indulge that. It's not about, like, let's just draw the audience down. In fact, there's some incredible gallows-type humour in this film consistently. Mm. And I think it's, it, you know, it comes back to the, the performance of, of Core and Stott in terms of the way in which they keep these characters alive for the entire duration of the film. Yeah, they're really amazing actors. I mean, I think you're right. It's sort of so much of what makes this film work is the performances of these two guys. I love it. This is one of my favourite Australian films in actually quite a while. I've actually gone to see the film twice and I've read the memoir and I've bought the soundtrack. I've become a little bit obsessed. Um, This is what drama should be. I mean, I think drama falls into sort of cliche or melodrama or or triteness or or, or way way too often where I think this is how to see it done right. So, yeah, we encourage people to go and check out Holding the Man... You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to 
Plato's Cave film criticism. It's just myself, Thomas, with Josh in the cave tonight. We're going to look at uh, one more film. That film is The Wolf Pack. This is a, a very new American documentary that debuted at Sundance and has been causing quite a bit of buzz. It's, um, it's a film about uh, six brothers who were effective... I don't know. I'm not too sure the terminology to use this. Do we say they're homeschooled, they were kept prisoner, they were isolated from the world? This all is, of the above. All of the above, really, wasn't it? Mm. They, and, and one sister. And one mention. sister, yeah. Um, so they live in New York, New York City, and they're confined to this one apartment. Yeah, a, a mother, a father, a sister, who we hear almost next to nothing from during the film, which is kind of odd, and um, these these six boys. And their father has this kind of mixture of paranoia and hatred for modernity and sort of quasi-spiritualism that, that one, he insisted on the mother having ten children, but, you know, once she'd had seven, she couldn't have children anymore, so he may do with that. And, um, and then basically locked them all into this apartment, shielding them from the outside world. Uh, he also, he doesn't work, he doesn't believe in that, and so they, they live off the money provided to them so they can be homeschooled. And we get to know these six Boys, it's um, it's kind of extraordinary that the filmmaker got access to this to this apartment and got to know them. And I suppose the defining feature, what has really fascinated people, is although the father was very protective about not letting them go outside, he seemed not to give a damn what media they consumed. And so they grew up on a diet of film, and quite good film. They all have really good taste as well, and they spend a lot of time reenacting the films they've seen, building elaborate costumes. We, 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 Josh, we both saw Raiders at the, the film festival about the guys reconstructing Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, these 12-year-old boys. Um, yeah, that was one of my highlights from Myth. Which was really, really fun, had a great spirit to it. I can't say the Wolfpack was, was fun had a great spirit to it either because what's happening to these boys is, I think it's child abuse. It's, it's certainly there's a lot of emotional and psychological violence done to the mother and, and to the boys as well. But um, this is a really curious documentary and I still don't know quite how I feel about it other than making a few observations such as it's remarkable how well-spoken and candid they are but in a way that's a little bit weird because they've grown up watching media. Their, 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 their interaction with the outside world is people performing for the camera. So they actually perform really well. And when they're trying to articulate their emotions, it has this bizarre kind of rehearsed feel to it. But they're also really likeable guys. I mean, they all seemed, relative, for what they've gone through, they all seem relatively together and with it and quite... Yeah, quite lovely people. Although, you know, some of them are suffering some... You get hints of this, some fairly extreme paranoia and phobias themselves, which they talk about quite openly. I I like this film. I feel a bit uncomfortable watching it. There's an element of it that felt a bit exploitive. There's an element where I felt that are we really watching a proper documentary about these boys because the intrusion of the camera is obviously having such a big impact on them. Um, I don't know whether I like the fact it was so observational or whether, you know, I feel a little bit annoyed we didn't get more information about exactly what was going on. There's no sense of the way the time passes in this film. I'm a whole mess of feelings about this film. Josh, I'm hoping that you're now going to talk for 10 minutes. I'll know exactly how to think about it once you're done. Um, well, I'll raise some issues and then we can <laughs> all bounce off each, each other with them. Last week we talked about, we mentioned briefly Iris, the documentary about Iris Apfel, and we talked about documentaries that have a great subject but aren't necessarily great documentaries. Yeah, I see and where I you're think, going. Yeah. I think The Wolf Pack falls under that category for me. This is a goldmine for a documentary. And I, I think I mentioned that this, this is a kind of a once-in-a-lifetime find for a documentary film. 
filmmaker, but the film doesn't do them justice. I feel like Crystal Moselle, I think she's a first-time feature director, is almost trying to rest on her laurels that the the uniqueness of these the, her subjects will carry the film, and I don't think it does. And I had so many issues with the with the structure, which I think lacks a real sense of dramatic momentum, but more so with the idea that the film raises so many issues and yet doesn't really explore them. It feels like it just skims the surface. And you've already mentioned it, a number of them. One is the incredible sort of tyranny of the the father figure and the abuse that is constantly referred to but never really explored and i think the film lacks a a kind of an 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 audience entrance into this world given that the way in which their world is constructed is one of access one of uh, the refusal of the access of the outside world and yet why don't we ever find out how the filmmaker got into this world and is being embraced by this so-called wolf pack, given the family and the father particularly is so paranoid about outsiders, let alone the contradiction that the film raises in terms of the reason we hear for the, the shut-in was because of the, the harsh violence of the streets of New York City, and yet the diet of films they've largely grown up on is dominated by violent fodder, including Quentin Tarantino, and they spend great attention reenacting moments from Reservoir dogs these are all elements that i think are ripe for exploration and i think a, a better or a more experienced and i know i'm maybe sounding a little patronizing here documentarian would have explored those in a more uh deeper manner now this is along the lines actually what my gut was telling me as well there's something that's just not quite there with this film i suspect she got very excited as you would about this these remarkable group of boys who were just so obsessed with film because all they had and started doing these elaborate reenactments like we saw in Raiders or, you know, the Be Kind Rewind type things or, again, me, Earl and the Dying Girl, kind of the characters in that also does these kind of sort of homemade reenactments of big famous films. Rushmore, we saw it in that too, except this is the real deal. These guys are actually doing it. And then maybe throughout the process of looking at that, she discovered there's something a lot deeper and darker and more painful and... I don't know, it almost feels like she's reluctantly put all that stuff in. Even though it's quite a... The, the film ends, actually, in quite a beautiful sequence. I quite like the way it, it, it does end. But, um, yeah, there's something just not quite satisfying, is there? It's sort of... You know, and we see moments where they do get to leave, and and a few of them are told in flashback, and they sound like the more interesting episodes, where the episodes where they do leave, it, it obviously feels like something she initiated, too. Like, I mean, I... Uh, yeah, I did feel that when we see them going to the beach, that was her organising that to go with them to the beach. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it. Just the film increasingly lost some of its authenticity because you have got such malleable subjects. I don't want to second-guess what she was doing with it, but um, it just it didn't seem to be the sum of all its pieces. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the question about access, I think, is important. Like, why, why, what are they getting out of this? Why has she... Where did she stumble upon them? What is the approach... Is she interested in their individual identities or only us seeing them as a kind of collective mass? I think one of the curious creative decisions is we don't get any sense of of a deliberate attempt for her to distinguish among the different members of the family beyond mother and father. Yeah, I found that really frustrating. Until the end where suddenly we get title cards of the individual names. And I thought, okay, are you trying to say that at the end of the film they're finally 
you know, because of this documentary, they now have distinguished, you know, separate identities, whereas they didn't before. Look, I think that's a bit flimsy. I think, you know, again, it w- would have been more interesting to go into that environment where they do seem to have this wolf pack mentality and start to explore what are the differences. Because she does insinuate that with saying, you know, well, one of the boys is the first to leave and, and what are, you know, how that, that impacts upon the various families. That would be a moment to start to play with the different members of the Angelo family. And again, I don't think... I don't think it pulls it off. In, in saying all this and the criticisms I have, I do think it's fascinating just because they are such an interesting family. Yeah, I'm really glad I saw this film. And, and towards the end, I did find it quite moving. Um, but, yeah, it's one of those films... There's an interview during the rounds at the moment that Tarantino did where he talked about his frustration with It Follows is it's a really good film and he was frustrated it wasn't quite great. And I think I feel a bit like that with this film. I think it's a very good film, but I'm frustrated that it's, it's almost great and it isn't quite there uh it's the wolf pack it's it's an interesting one but um probably the film i'm less enamored with that we've spoken about tonight three triple ah. you're listening to plato's cave with josh and thomas we've got 10 minutes of the program left which we've put aside uh <laughs> we weren't planning on doing this but some very sad news came through Today. I feel like a lot this year we've had to sort of announce sad news, but this one I know had a big effect on you, Josh. Yeah, I'm getting a little choked up, I think, recalling this. And I only found out the news about an, uh, an hour or two ago, and that is Wes Craven departed this mortal coil uh, earlier today. He was 76 years old. This is one of a number of filmmakers that had a very formative uh, effect on me and my youth, a, a very underrated uh, horror director in terms of his influence, particularly in the early days. I mean, he's probably best known and rightly so for the uh, for giving birth to uh, Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, but even before then, The Hills Have Eyes, Last House on the Left, and some very underrated films that came after that. I think The Serpent and the Rainbow was a really interesting film to revisit. And I think he's a director who was postmodern before postmodern was popular to quote that line from 24 hour party people where's craven's new nightmare which provided a nice sort of round out uh, of the franchise before inevitably it came back to life was an incredibly underrated film and, and was very clever and i think sadly scream is the postmodern film that gets most of the credit and and was certainly financially more successful but for me where's craven's new nightmare was the far superior film yeah i really like where's craven's new nightmare i think that's uh, an under rated film and i mean yeah it, it is i mean <laughs> it's really sad to say goodbye to these people who are so kind of definitive and you and i are of the generation where we kind of grew up watching these films although i wasn't allowed so i saw them a bit, bit later but i mean a nightmare on elm street is such a def- defining film of any genre or, or country i mean well, what he did creating that kind of primal fear through that freddy character who if you remember originally was very much a in the shadows boogeyman character before he became the stand-up comedian but yeah remarkable director and look i know a lot of people are huge scream fans um and he was making films up all the way he, he, he went i mean he never sort of let go of his passion yeah one of the things i also wanted to mention was just how articulate he was and that's what really struck me about wes craven um to, I, one of the things i really liked about him was that he was a 
teacher. He began as a teacher, then he went into filmmaking, and he also wrote novels as well, which are really quite accomplished. And I think just to flag a documentary that some people may not be aware of, there is an incredible Nightmare on Elm Street franchise documentary called Never Sleep Again, and Craven participates in that quite a deal, and you see just how clever and articulate he was. Tonight on Playerscape, we talked about Southpaw. That's on wide release through Roadshow Films. Best of Enemies is screening exclusively at Cinema Nova, courtesy of High Gloss Entertainment. Holding the Man is on general release through Transmission Films. The Wolfpack is screening exclusively at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Madman Entertainment. You've been listening to Thomas Caldwell and Josh Nelson. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. Thank you.